Well, hello, all you regenerative agriculture fans out there. Today, I'm talking with a well-known man in the no-till organic produce and market gardening space, Jesse Frost, known as Farmer Jesse on his YouTube channel called No-Till Growers, and he educates and entertains in his distinctive self-deprecating style of self-proclaimed nerdiness. He also hosts the No-Till Market Garden podcast, and he's the founder of the No-Till Growers Network where he offers accessible educational content for growers of all levels and all different mediums. He's also the author of The Living Soil Handbook through Chelsea Green Publishers, which is a fantastic how-to for no-till growers who want to be market gardening on small acreage. He's a busy guy. Today we're gonna hear of his path to agriculture through restaurant kitchens and loving to eat veggies. We're gonna hear some of his aha moments from Mrs. Gettlefinger's produce to visiting a French champagne maker's facility where the tour started with cows of all things. He even offers some wisdom on how to be a modern farming family with off-farm income. And today he and his wife, Hannah, own Rough Draft Farmstead. And along with their children, they grow produce for restaurants, of course, and the local farmer's market in central Kentucky. Farmer Jesse keeps it nerdy and shares no-till principles, carefully explaining the harm done when soil's tilled. He talks about how to get started on small land, even if you don't own it, and offers a lot of inspiration and hope for small farmers and new entrants and young people into the world of no-till market gardening. I'm Judith Farrell Horvath, shepherdess and owner at Fairhill Farm in Central Ohio, raising hair sheep, dairy goats, and a whole lot more. We help people get their own regenerative farming and agricultural projects on track for success. On this podcast, we hear tales from others to help you accelerate your own successful venture, no matter how big or small, because I believe in a future of interconnected small farms being the backbone of a resilient food supply chain. Farmer Jesse, here's to years of success in an ever-increasing network of no-till farmers across planet Earth and a whole lot of great compost to you. And now, enjoy the interview. Welcome, Jesse. Huge welcome to Farrell Farmstead Life. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, would you introduce yourself and tell the audience who you are and what you do in case they haven't uh, heard of you or seen you yet? Sure, sure. So uh, my name is Jesse Frost. Uh, a lot of people know me as Farber Jesse. I do. Um, we created No-Till Growers is one of the main things that I'm known for. It's a uh, website sort of aggregating as much growing information as we possibly can in terms of we do uh, five or six different podcasts. We do videos. Um, I also wrote the, uh, a book called The Living Soil Handbook. Um, and also my wife and I are full-time farmers in central Kentucky. Uh, we run a farm called Rough Draft Farmstead, and it's a small sort of uh, 0.8 acres. So what is that? Four-fifths of an acre um, home and farm that we have been running, we've been farming, I think this is my 15th year farming. So, um, but she and I've been, you know, we apprenticed for two years and, uh, uh, you know, have been kind of on our own for the last like 13. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a have got a lot of, a lot of different hats that I wear, but, um, but they're all kind of central to that, that farming thing. <laughs> and you have a YouTube channel also, correct? Yeah. So the YouTube channel is also no-till growers. Um, that is, uh, you know, we, we found kind of over the years that the easiest that no two people kind of ingest farming information the same way. There are a lot of people that like that, um, like to watch this, you know, videos. Um, there are a lot of people that 
don't have the time to watch the videos and prefer to just kind of listen to the podcast while they work. Um, and then, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we did the book as well, cause there's a lot of people who don't do either of those things who prefer to kind of sit and read and digest that way. And then, you know, the combination. So we started doing, uh, videos. Yeah. Probably in 2018, I think, uh, maybe 2017. And then, um, yeah, I think it just, I think it just got over 300,000 subscribers this past week. So it's, it's grown, grown quite a lot. And, uh, the whole goal for us, for no-till growers is kind of like, we want to figure out ways to get information out there as free or as cheaply as possible. Um, we just want to see more people growing and we want there to be an option for people who want to learn and who may not have the money to invest thousands of dollars in a class or a course or whatever it may be, um, to at least like dip their feet and see if they, it's something they enjoy. And, you know, we all kind of continue learning together. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really encouraging for people who are getting into, uh, growing. So you consider yourself to be a market gardener? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's generally the term I use. Um, and I don't, I don't have animals and stuff like we used to. We used to run sheep um, mm -hmm. for, I don't know, 12 years or something. Uh, and we moved to a new property at the end of 2020. And so that uh, that new this new property that we're on now is kind of too small to run sheep anymore. And we had mm -hmm. chickens. Oh, you know, chickens are just one that, you know, you, you just can't get away from as a farmer. Um, <laughs> but we we had chickens up until this past spring. Uh, the neighbor's dog killed 30 of them. And it kind of oh, just, and the dog is super athletic. I mean, they were fenced well and everything. It just jumped over the fence. So it was just one of those things where we're like, do we want to hmm. really go around the whole farm and fence this thing in to protect like 30 chickens? And it just didn't feel like, you know, they don't bother the garden. <laughs> so we were, um, we just kind of were like, okay, maybe this isn't the best option for us right now. And so, um, yeah, so we have no animals right now. So I kind of just focus mostly on the market garden stuff. Um, and that's been good for us. Honestly, I love vegetables. I, I like that they stay put. I like that they, <laughs> I, I like growing them. Um, I, you know, the, I, I like eating them. I love eating vegetables. I, I didn't realize how much I loved eating vegetables until I started eating them fresh and just like, you know, having a fresh salad every day. And, um, you know, uh, just, just the, the, the amount of possibilities of the things that you can grow and do with vegetables is, is very fun for me. And that par partially because my background is also in cooking. So, um, and we're, I'm happy to talk about that, but that's also one of the things that got me into farming was just a love of food. So, yeah. Well, I'm a foodie too. So I would love to hear this, you know, briefly, let's, let's talk a little bit about your background. Cause a lot of people who are entering agriculture these days do not come from agricultural backgrounds. They don't come from farming families. Yeah. So, uh, I always try to tell the story a little different cause I, cause you know, I think like with any origin story, like how I got into farming, uh, you know, it can get redundant, but also like it can, there's like a thousand different answers to that. Um, <laughs> Cause it could be like, well, I got in for my health, but also I got in cause I like being outside, but also, you know, so for me, uh, on the cooking front, like on the food side, I was, um, you know, I really wanted to be a chef after reading, uh, Anthony Bourdain's kitchen confidential, like back when I was like 18, 17, you know, I was cooking. That's oh, a great book. Oh, it's and a great book. Oh my gosh. I mean, I was devastated when he died. Oh, um, what a loss. I agree. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. It's, it, uh, oh. it's, it's worth, it's worth taking a moment to, to, mm -hmm to miss him. Cause it, it really, yeah, that was really, that was really devastating when he, when he passed away. Um, but the, yeah, I mean, it, I was reading that when I was working at like Outback Steakhouse actually. Um, and I was like 17 maybe. 
And that book came out and I was reading it and uh, I was just like, okay, this is what I want to do. Like, this is something I really connected to, which is kind of, if you read the book and you'd be like, why would anybody connect to this? Cause it's a really wild book, but I connected to the lifestyle and I was like, oh, for the first time I felt like, oh, this is a thing that people do. And, you know, I don't know, people being seen as like a, a career, like I'd never really thought about it up until that point. So yeah, I moved to Louisville, um, which is, you know, like an hour from where I grew up. And, um, they had a, there was a chef there that it was a French restaurant, uh, guy named Daniel stage took me in and gave me a job. And we, uh, yeah, I cooked there for like two years and I loved it. And, but in that time, one of the things that we did was we, uh, had a, um, there was a, uh, like a f older farming couple, they would bring in these really Mrs. Gettlefinger, Mr. and Mrs. Gettlefinger. And they would bring in these amazing heirloom tomatoes and these cucumbers. Mm -hmm. And I just remember like tasting those for the first time and being absolutely floored because we used, to, you know, our thing was like, we got all this fancy produce. Like we got like these beautiful, like crisp wrapped boxes of all this stuff from, you know, these various vendors um, and we get like fish flown in and all this stuff. And then here we have this like older couple who kind of like slowly ambled down the stairs and like brought their cases of tomatoes and just like immaculate produce. Um, but it was, you know, it was like seemed kind of dirty and it was great. Like it was unbelievable. I don't know if I've still to this day tasted a tomato that good. Huh. Um, and, but yeah, those, that like was one of those moments where I was like, oh, this, there's something to this. Like, this is really extraordinary. So that was kind of the introduction on that front. Like I just seeing that connection directly from a gardener, from a farmer. Um, and then I, my chef would often send me out to do runs to like um, the produce stands and stuff to go hunt down whatever we needed at, th at that day. And um, I just, yeah, I just really became fascinated by that connection. And, and then of course that was like right before, I mean, this would have been the early aughts. So this is before there was really like that first big flush of farm to table movement, you know, mm -hmm. um, with, you know, I don't even think I forget when Omnivore's Dilemma was published, but it was a little bit later um, or it was maybe right around the time, but it really got popular a little bit later. And um, yeah, so that was like, a, that was, yeah, that was kind of it. I mean, that was the start, at least on the food side. And then there's a whole wine story that also comes in there into play. Um, wine story? Yeah, I was living in uh, New York City. I moved to New York City to be a cook. And um, for various reasons, I kind of fell out of love with the cooking side. Like it just, it was a little bit too much to be out that late and waiting on trains. And also, I just like didn't enjoy it as much in New York as I did in Kentucky. I think it was just like a mm -hmm. different, I don't know, it was a different world. And I kind of took a little time to readjust and reassess um, it also do a lot of drinking. I'm not going to lie. That's part of it. I was in New York city and I was like 21. So it was like very exciting. <laughs> um, so I also just like at that time was like, okay, well I need a job while I like reassess, like if I'm going to try different restaurants or like, you know, go cook in other places. Um, and I got a job at a wine shop in that time and I, and I really enjoyed it. And I started to realize like, oh, um, beyond the discount on booze, the wine is amazing. Like this extraordinary, like agricultural product that I had never really considered much beyond it being like a fancy drink. Um, and so I started to really dive into that world and started to travel to Europe and meet like the producers out there. Hmm. And, um, 
that was ex that was amazing on many fronts because uh like the first wine shop i got into was like kind of cool but it was like kind of you know it sold kind of generic stuff um but the second shop i got into uh upon recommendation from a friend was like much nerdier like they specialized in like very small boutique wines that you know were very farmer wines um you know low intervention what we call now call natural wines mm -hmm. um a lot of that sort of stuff so we had very cool small batch wines that you wouldn't you know see most places and those were the winemakers that like really inspired me so i went and visited a bunch of them and i just remember how like you know i i often tell the story of uh bertrand guthrow um he's a champagne producer and, and kind of south southern side of champagne a little small grower like not not one you'd think of like we all think of like moet and chandon and bouffe clicquot and these this was this was a guy that was producing one called vouet and sorbet and it was just a very small batch champagne but we sold it and i wanted to visit him to kind of learn about it hmm. um we sold it in the shop that i worked in so i went to his farm and i was kind of young and naive you know i was, I was probably only 25 i think at this point and i just kind of rolled in there and i was like um, you know, expecting to kind of see his cellars and maybe taste some of his wines. And he like immediately took me out to his cattle. Huh. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> so unexpected, <laughs> unexpected, but yeah, yeah, he was like, you have to see the cows. You have to see, you know, the, uh, how we do, how, where it all starts. And so, but for him, like to him, that was like showing me the wine, you know, cause he was, he was biodynamic. So he used mm -hmm. cow manure and he used, uh, you know, in his biodynamic preparations and mm -hmm. that's somewhat common, or at least it was at that time in, in winemaking to be biodynamic. That was pretty common. Um, so he, yeah, he would show me some of the, you know, different things he was doing with the cattle and like kind of explain to me like why they were important to his vineyards. And, um, then we went and saw the vineyards and instead of like, again, like the wine was the very last part of all of this. Like we went and dug into the dirt and like smelled the soil and tasted the soil and like smelled, you know, the leaves and crushed grapes in our hands and like looked at all and compared them to his neighbors who were conventional. And, um, oh. it was very like, that was, that was very eye opening to me. Bertrand is an amazing grower and amazing champagne producer, but like just getting to see that side, the, the farmer side of it, because mm -hmm. you see champagne and it's on a table and it costs a hundred dollars a bottle or whatever. And you're like, oh, okay, it's like this fancy product, but it's like a nerdy farmer thing that's just like uh, unbelievable. You know, seeing the these guys like in the fields is really extraordinary. Um, so that was cool. Like that was that was really when the wheels started turning for me. And then after a few more visits like that with other growers around Austria and France, I I kind of was like, oh well, I need to I need to start my own like sort of agricultural journey. Um, but knowing I didn't want to do wine, I wanted to grow vegetables. I I moved to well, I actually didn't, wasn't a hundred percent sure what I wanted to do, but I, I knew I didn't want to do wine. So I, I kind of moved to, I got an internship in, in Southern Kentucky mm -hmm. and there I, um, you know, they, that farm was a biodynamic farm, which I was interested in. Um, but they also, uh, you know, did everything. They did vegetables, they did, uh, some fruits, they did a lot of, they did pigs, uh, we had laying hens and, sheep and cattle and all that was rotationally grazed like it was like everything i wanted experience with and mm -hmm. so i did that internship and um that farm was called bug tussle farm and my mentors eric and share are amazing but they yeah we did that i did that and um that would that was like an extraordinary just like crash course in all things farming like all those different things all the rotation all the buzzwords like we were doing all of them 
Um, and we, it was, yeah, it was a really cool farm, really cool experience. And the next, I did two years interning there and the second year, my now wife, Hannah was the other intern. So that's how we met. Look at that. Yep. Surprise. That was the surprise ending to that whole story. <laughs> so then you guys decided from there to go and start your own farm. We did. Um, <clears throat> almost immediately, <throat> Hannah and I met in February and were married in December of that same year. So, mm. um, but you know, like when you've like worked together every day for like, you know, whatever that is, nine months, seven. Well, I guess by the time that we both moved on to the farm, it was like six months. We knew each other pretty well. So it wasn't yeah. like, it was like, you know, the weirdest kind of dating, but we, um, <laughs> you know, we, we ultimately, yeah, got to know like each other at our best, our worst, all those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, honestly, that's how, how it should go. Like you get to know, you really get to know if you can put up with somebody like in a working environment, especially on a farm. Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, I know I can work with this person. We know how, you know, I know what their strengths and weaknesses are. And I know, you know, how far, uh, yeah, you know, how, how much we can do as a, as a family in a farm. So, um, yeah, that was great. Like it was, a, I, I cherished that. And I cherished that experience. That was very, a very great, uh, you know, way to meet her. You're very fortunate. A lot of people talk about how they're interested in agriculture and then their other, their partner, their other half is not interested. And it's like this push pull, um, dynamic for first generation farmers where one's really into it and the other one's like meh or no you know yeah, yeah. i and i've seen it destroy a lot of <clears throat> farms and families yes. too people you know one forcing the other one to do farming when they don't want to and yeah. i think um i think it can't be approached that way like it just it have you have to be on the same page or there's got to be some give and take of just like okay i know you want to move to the middle of nowhere and be a farmer how about we do something smaller, closer to civilization for my sake, you know, and then that way, like you find some common ground and then, mm -hmm. um, you know, that kind of adjust it that way. But I, I have, I mean, I know of a lot of farms who farm families who end up in, you know, uh, either divorced or just angry at each other <laughs> because that's yeah. not, yeah, that's not one of them didn't want to do it. And the other kind of forced the issue. So, um, you mentioned being on a biodynamic farm. <clears throat> now, are, do you consider yourself to be using, do you use uh, biodynamic principles now or you just call yourselves no-till? So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we don't use any uh, biodynamic preps anymore. Okay. Uh, we have in the past. And um, honestly, it's just a, uh, I have no issue with that. I, I think it's great. And I mean, I've seen, um, uh, you know, I've, I've tasted biodynamic produce is some of the best. Like it's just, it's the same way with the wines. Like the whole reason I got into it was because it just tasted better. Mm. Like I would taste a wine and be like, why is this so amazing? And they'd be like, oh, it's biodynamic wine. Like they really, it's just a matter of, of, um, you know, different, uh, soil preparations and compost preparations and sprays that ultimately, you know, um, lead to healthier plants and they're not using chemicals and they're taking care of their soil and, mm -hmm. um, you know, all those things that, that sort of add, to more nutritious food and thus better tasting food. Um, but we do a lot of our own preparations. We just don't really follow like the biodynamic calendar. And um, it just, it's a little complicated with making your own with biodynamics because we're also certified organic. Um, you can okay. do that, but you just have to keep track of everything. And um, and yeah, we, we, I mean, I would absolutely and still have over the last few years used some biodynamic preparations, but um, 
yeah, generally we are no till is kind of how we describe ourselves. Um, and that's really a matter of, um, we kind of describe it like, you know, it's not just about not turning over the soil. It's about doing things that, in, you know, encourage long-term soil health. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think with a lot of people, when they think of no-till that term, and especially people kind of in our area in the Midwest out, you know, through Illinois and into the, you know, corn belt, um, talk about like no-till is like spraying stuff down with herbicide and then planting into that. And that's not what I'm referring to. Like I'm talking about organic, yeah. uh, you know, low or no tillage, uh, approach to primarily market gardening. Um, mm -hmm. but with the emphasis on soil health and creating, you know, ecologically friendly agriculture. So we're encouraging not just good, healthy soil life, but good, healthy, you know, uh, life around your farm. So birds and bugs, all of those things all play in, they're all important. Um, and so, yeah, no till, I mean, there's, there's a technical, right. That's like the general description, but there's also mm -hmm. like a lot of technical things that go into it. Um, so yeah, yeah. That helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I've just been reading so much lately about soil science and I just feel like, um, I did a lot of uh, biology undergrad work too. And I just feel like, could you imagine if, you know, they taught in school what we know about soil science today, how full of life it is. And I mean, it's not what I learned. I I'm not even sure if that's what they teach today, but uh, you know, you learn about photosynthesis, certainly, you know, you take a botany class, you take, you know, your, your general biology or whatever, but the uh, rhizophagy, like they don't yeah. like, that's sort of a thing that a lot of people don't know about that understanding the entire uh, process changes everything's in term everything in terms of understanding the sheer amount of complexity and the life and the activity that's going on in the soil itself and the amazing capabilities of the uh, mycorrhizal fungi is just it's it's mind-blowing and after learning about that I, like i can't believe we haven't all gone to no-till like just understanding what's going on you talk about that in your book a little bit um, do you want to touch on that for a lot of people who don't know what mycorrhizae is and like what turning over soil actually breaks and what it does, like the whole yeah. reason behind no-till? Yeah. 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 So um, we'll just start with tillage because I think it's important to understand like that what happens when you till soil, like when you bring specifically, let's just stick to the tiller because there are other things that can cause long-term harm to the soil, which is kind oh, yeah. of how I define tillage. But um, the tiller in particular, <clears throat> like it, it. One of the things it does is it whips in oxygen and it breaks apart soil aggregates. Now, soil aggregates are kind of like organic matter that's bound up with soil particles, like little microbes, basically like tie little presence of soil organic matter that they get to unwrap later slowly over time. Um, so basically, they just wrap up all this little soil organic matter and soil particles so that they can't easily get to it. It just sort of it kind of keeps it in place a little bit longer. Um, and soil organic matter can be anything from a dead and decaying microbe to, uh, you know, piece of a worm to whatever, to a piece of a plant root. So it can be anything and it kind of just inadvertently gets wrapped up in soil particles. So we call those soil aggregates. Um, and that's ultimately, you know, when you take a tiller through that soil, like I mentioned the oxygen, but also like you're breaking apart those soil aggregates and that whipping in that oxygen and breaking apart those soil aggregates kind of encourages 
oxygen loving bacteria to just go bonkers and start mm. eating all that newly freed organic matter from the soil particles. So they just go bonkers and they start eating all that, um, consuming it. And what you, what results there is a kind of bloom of CO2. A lot of CO2 escapes yeah. the soil at that time. Um, and the thing with in a tillage situation, since you're doing this pretty much on bare soil, there's nothing above the soil to recapture that carbon, that carbon dioxide um, that's breathed, breathed out like we breathe out. Like when yeah. we eat something, we breathe out a lot of carbon dioxide. When a microbe eats something, they breathe out a lot of carbon dioxide. So um, we that's all coming out of the that's all coming out of the earth and it doesn't have anything to recapture it put it back into the carbon cycle like a plant mm -hmm. like plants have their ability to just suck in carbon dioxide turn it into glucose and put it back in the soil or put it into their roots or their leaves or whatever so we you know when you do that with a tiller um you release all that carbon dioxide but without those plants to recapture it, you're just losing all the soil organic matters turning into co2 and escaping into the atmosphere so in a no tillage system you're not there. That's still happening, right? There's still that respiration. There's still that breathing, but it's not as fast. And you can have plants there all the time to recapture it. So what we say is, you know, um, you know, the principles, like the principles that I designed the book around are the, uh, are not my principles. They're the conservation agriculture principles, which are keep the soil covered as much as possible, plant it as much as possible and disturb it as little as you possibly can. Um, and, by keeping the soil covered and planted, you're kind of recapturing that, you know, uh, CO2 back into the plants and then keeping it in the carbon cycle right there in your soil instead of letting it escape to the atmosphere. Um, and yeah, and then keeping it, the, keeping it planted is almost the most important thing because plants are effectively how the soil gets its energy. You know, those are, I always say, I always call them, you know, uh, solar panels, like they're, 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 Basically, you can think of a plant like a, a giant solar panel and its roots are sort of the battery and the energy is the is the glucose is the, you know, CO2 is the carbon carbonaceous stuff that is the leaves that is the plant that is the roots, but it's also kind of leaking out of the roots uh, called exudates um, that sort of feeds the microbe microbial world down there. But that's, um you know, uh, so you do a lot of damage and then also you break up, you know, a lot of your uh, you know, mycorrhizal fungi, like those take a lot longer to establish than bacteria. Bacteria are very fast and yeah. they, they go fast and they breed fast and they live and die fast. Um, fungi are a lot slower. So to make that sort of, that, that sort of growth where they are growing out and they're seeking, you know, uh, different nutrients to feed back to their plants, um, that takes a while. So doing that, especially over and over again, you're losing a lot of those benefits. Um, yeah. And I mean, th th there's, there's a number of things you also run into when you break those aggregates up, that's kind of what's tying the soil together. So you're also making it prone to uh, erosion, um, mm -hmm. and nutrient leaching and, uh, you know, the, then it takes a while to kind of reestablish the, every time you want to plant, your, your microbes and your worms and all that stuff sort of have to reestablish all the infrastructure that was put in place, all those mycorrhizal fungi, all those tunnels and stuff that the worms use. Um, and, and then the populations, right? Like you, it's like running a tiller through a city and you can imagine the first thing they do is not put up buildings. They put up the infrastructure, right? If you, if you have a city that's devastated, you got to fix all the infrastructure first. You got to fix the electricity. You got to fix the plumbing. You got to do all that. And then you can start building. It's wow. the same thing with a, with a, with a 
with the soil. When you damage all that, all that stuff has to be rebuilt for it to keep growing. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's like, uh, I tried to use as many friendly analogies in there as I possibly could, but maybe I, maybe I mixed a few. I'm good at mixed metaphors. That's kind of the specialty I have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. There it's, how long does it take after you, well, if you've tilled something and, and then, um, how long in your experience, what, what do you think is the timeline between, uh, tilling and the qual same quality of soil that you have until like before you're seeing the same productivity and plant life and everything like like it never happened what what is that timeline um i mean it can it just depends on the soil like mm -hmm. um you know no two soils can be fixed at the same pace or or react to the same way necessarily like um yeah. uh you know i always i often use uh my two farms as an example so like uh the last farm that we were on uh, it was very exposed. Like it had a lot of wind issues. It was very high on a ridge, um, but it was very sunny and it got, you know, grew really well and the soil was really nice and it drained perfectly. Um, uh, and now the new farm that we're on doesn't drain at all. It it has a little bit more protection from the elements, but doesn't drain very well. It's, it's, um it's on a ridge top too, but it, for some reason, just the water doesn't ever want to leave. Um, and it's heavier clay, like denser soil. Mm. Uh, and those farms are like 15 minutes apart. Like these are two <sighs> wildly different farms and they're 15 minutes from each other. And, and probably if I just drove down the road a little ways, I'd find, you know, soil and a farm that is entirely different from the one I'm on. It probably mm -hmm. drains a lot better. That doesn't have that same sort of high water table thing going on. Mm -hmm. Um, and so each one is going to be different. And I've found that you know, uh, soil that's a little bit looser, like the more silty loam stuff, the, the soil that we typically think of as, as the better soil, um, is going to be a lot easier to repair if it's in kind of a mass state. Um, whereas clay is, may take a little longer and, and that's been our experience so far is that's just slow. Um, and we are, yeah, we, we, you know, uh, just to, it, there's no easy way to say like, this is how long it would take for your soil to get back up and functioning. Cause some may happen immediately. And you've seen those farmer, you know, that farmer, that gardener, who's just like, Oh, this is my first time planting and look at these like amazing crops and <laughs> they have no issues. And you're just like, Oh, go away. <laughs> but no, that's, I mean, that's a thing. Like it is, you know, yeah. it depends on the soil. It depends on sometimes just it, it can, it can all click into place. Um, and then other times it may take a couple of years. But really for the like restructuring and the the sort of rebuilding of the soil, um, you know, that it, it can usually oftentimes take a year. Uh, the first year with no till is not always that great. It's kind of like, cause your soil has a lot of rebuilding to do, but then mm -hmm. once it gets there and the nutrients are there and you've kind of followed the principles, like it can really take off and, and, um, yeah, there was even a recent study I was, ju I was just reading this morning about no tillage. It had to do with tarping, but it talked about how the first year was the yields were kind of on par with everybody else. But then it was the second and third year they started to see the yields of no till really. Um, and this was like a Cornell study, I think, or something. So, yeah, they've really started to take off. Um, yeah. So on your farm, do you use uh, a bunch of different methods like succession planting, companion planting, and interplanting or intercropping? You want to talk a little bit about those differences for the people who might not, they might think that those are all, you know, 
synonymous terms. Could you talk a little bit about what those are and how you use them? Yeah, sure. So we do, we use kind of all of those things in some, okay. to some extent. So, um, succession planting is more like, uh, your, let's say you want lettuce for your house for yourself, right? You don't want to plant 40 heads of lettuce all at the same time. Cause then you get 40 heads of lettuce all at the same time. It's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of salad. Yeah. So you'd want to have a succession of those, mm -hmm. um, where you're planting maybe two a week and then, mm -hmm. you know, uh, over the course of a season, if you do that every week, you'll have one or two heads every single week. Um, so that's kind of what is That's like a basic version of a succession. Um, companion planting is when you're planting two crops that, uh, complement one another or potentially one crop sort of benefits the other one. Um, so, uh, you know, like there's a whole, there's books. I, I wrote a lot about interplant. I think I dedicate almost an entire chapter to interplanting, mm -hmm. um, in my, in the living soil handbook, but it's cause it's complicated. Like there's a lot to it, but companion planting is more like you're, you're wanting a benefit from one crop or from one crop to the other one or to, you know, two crops benefit each other in some way. Um, forgive me. I'm going to cough for a second. <laughs> mm. Sorry. I figured I would warn you. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, with interplanting, that's more like taking advantage of the space that's not being utilized. So, mm -hmm. um, so an example would be like when you put your tomatoes in, um, you know, you have this space on either side of your tomato plants that's not being utilized. Like it's just open space. Um, and especially for us who we use like a bed system. So our beds are always in the same place. There's just empty space maybe depending on, you know, we do 48 inch beds. So we have like at least a foot and a half on either side of the tomatoes. That's just could just sitting there for the next 50 days until the tomatoes start producing. Mm -hmm. Um, so what we do is we will put beets there. We'll put lettuce there, green onions, or sometimes we'll even plant basil, um, right there next to the tomatoes. And then that way we get a crop out while those tomatoes are growing. So we're kind of taking advantage of that space. Um, and you could do that same thing with peppers or uh, ginger or any number of crops that you're wanting to kind of just, they're slow and they're sitting there and you have this space. So you want to utilize it. Um, and yeah. And then you mentioned another term. What was the other one that I'm forgetting? Uh, a succession companion and then interplanting or intercropping. So I just, oh, okay. Yeah. Those so a little, those are a, a slash there. Oh, that that's my fault then. But yeah, the intercropping interplanting are, mm -hmm. are, basically the same. They're the same thing. Um, people use them interchangeably. Yeah. Yeah. So that goes with your whole principle of keep the beds planted and keep the soil covered, right? Like you mentioned those. So that intercropping fulfills that purpose by utilizing that soil and not only with mutualism between the, the plants, the, the way I understand it, but also just to keep that soil covered just because of the leaves covering things. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, there's the plant cover, which is good for moisture retention. Um, yeah. And that can go into that, you know, principle of keeping the soil covered as much as possible. Um, generally, it's a principle that refers to, uh, you know, like mulches. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the uh, you know, an example that we used this past spring, this past summer, uh, was we plant our sweet potatoes. And then in the next bed, we plant our popcorn. And then in the bed after that, we plant our sweet potatoes and so on and so on. Um and the value of that is that once the sweet potato vines kind of take over their own bed, they start creeping into the next bed. So those vines are sort of just protecting the soil, you know, below those popcorn. Um, so, you know, not dissimilar to what the squash does in like a three sisters 
mm-hmm. sort of planting, um, the in, indigenous, you know, method of planting multiple crops, sometimes beans and squash and corn and, um, but also sunflowers and other crops have been included in those. And, um, yeah, that sort of idea is that the crops are all kind of benefiting one another. And, and, uh, in that case, yeah, that's kind of covering the soil. So what do you use for mulch? I think when a lot of people hear mulch, they think like, you know, the chipped up stuff that comes in a bag, but what do you use for mulch? It's a different use. Yeah. Right. We use a lot of different stuff for mulch. Um, again, another thing I've dedicated a whole chapter to, because I think Mm -hmm. it's like, it's not, it's, it's not without its complexities and nuances. So, um, you know, we'll use compost as a mulch. We'll use uh, hay as a mulch. We don't use a lot of straw because like for us, we're not in a small grain going region, right? Mm. So um, not really like people grow some wheat and some barley and that sort of stuff around here, but not really, not on any level that uh, is is really makes it accessible price-wise. Um, and also like you have with something like that, you do have to know the provenance because it can be uh, desiccated with a, it can be sprayed with a herbicide to basically dry down the grain. Um, mm. so you don't want to put that next to your plants. So, um, yeah, so straw can be tricky in that way. Um, we'll use wood chips in our pathways. We don't use them on the bed surface. Mm-hmm. Um, been experimenting more with like decomposed wood chips as uh, a mulch for longer season stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, just like partially decompose, like let it sit for a couple of years in, in a really wet spot and like let it kind of break down. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll use, uh, yeah, let me, ch- oh, leaves is the other one that I kind of, um, will utilize mostly as like a secondary mulch because they blow away pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll either partially decompose them or I'll lay them down and then put like a hand, a little bit of compost or something over top to just sort of hold them down. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, and usually chopped up leaves, the, the, the ones that are still intact can often create like a thick mat that nothing will grow through. So, um, yeah, yeah. Those are kind of our main mulches. So you, it sounds like you use a lot of compost. Do you make your own compost? We do make, a, we do make our own compost. We don't okay. make all of our own compost. So we do buy some in, um, and increasingly we're using less as a mulch only because it's just not accessible to us price-wise. And when you okay. do the, when you do the profit breakdown, um, it, it's kind of hard to justify compost as a mulch sometimes. Yeah. Um, especially when you break down the profit and then you also do the labor involved in moving it. And, um, you know, it, it just, it doesn't always make sense. And also there's this whole other issue with compost, which is the persistent herbicide issue, meaning yes. that, you know, like a lot, they're, I've had a lot of friends get burned literally by, you know, not themselves, but their plants get burned, um, by persistent herbicides and compost. And that's like, you know, those persistent herbicides are, they persist long beyond the composting process. And then once you put them on the soil, it's really hard to get rid of them. You have to remediate them with cover crops and stuff. Um, so, you know, they're just built to be resistant to decomposition, which if you're, you know, I guess in a, if you're using them to, to, you know, get rid of some weeds that you don't want is a benefit, but for everybody else, literally everybody else, they're terrible. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, that's the amino pyrrolids and, and I know in some places they've outlawed some usage of them, but it's just, I mean, it's unbelievable that that's a thing people use. Um, amino pyrrolids, I'm trying to remember which ones, is that Grayson? Is that the brand? Mm, yeah, that's one of them. And then there's like a, that stuff's got a half-life of like two years like it accumulates it's crazy how yeah they'll last like it is. 
if if it's not decom if the comp if it's not composted well enough, yeah, it can last you after years in the soils. And yeah. I don't know which ones all like there's all there's there's information about that on the U uh US composting council site. I think they have some okay. information about like if you're looking at certain chemicals and um but yeah, yeah, too. it's super persistent stuff. Um a lot of that other stuff, you know, the half-life is like six months or three months or something. Um, but that one is really long lasting. So it sounds like getting uh, extra hay from the hay guy down the street is not necessarily a good idea because he's probably sprayed uh, herbicides on his hay fields in order to keep it like really good. Just like ask them. I mean, yeah, you, know, it, it, you know, some hay producers will tell you they don't spray because there's they've done the math and they know that that's not going to make them any money. It's like a really mathematically, it doesn't make a lot of sense to spray your hay fields because there's no way to justify the cost, the labor involved already. Mm -hmm. Like hay doesn't make any money. For most people, like it's not the super profitable enterprise. Um, depends on the hay. I, I know some guys hay. who do like horse hay. They'll do like some pretty heavy duty alfalfa, you know, oh, some sure. like high end stuff. Yeah. But yeah, but it is, it's worth asking because some will spray totally. down the broadleaf herbicides, um, you know, broadleafs with something like, uh, yeah, you know, any of the broadleaf herbicides. Um, and then you definitely don't want to put a broadleaf herbicide ridden hay next to your plant. Um, but I, you know, I have a hay guy and he doesn't spray his fields at all. And he is, you know, he is even willing to sign the, the like non-restricted use affidavit thing. They make you sign for certified organic. Um, mm -hmm. and which is great. He's, I, I really appreciate that he does that. And, um, yeah, you know, but every, if you, if they can't tell you the provenance of like where the hay came from, if you're buying it from a broker or something, then it's probably yeah. too risky to use. Yeah, uh, that that really kind of gives me pause thinking about the straw that I get from one of my local guys that I use for bedding for my goats and sheep. And yeah. then it goes into my compost. So I'm sitting here going, oh, crap. <laughs> Literally, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that most of the mm. stuff that they're spraying is like Roundup, so the half-life is not super long, is my understanding. Oh, I still can't see the thought of it. I just, yeah. oh, ick. I mean, if, if anything's going to get rid of it, it's definitely going to be the composting process. But that's just the, you know, that's the world of conventional agriculture is that it's those things are, um, you know, are tools and that's the, how they're used and it it ends up being they 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 uh drift and um yeah. and they they stay in our food supply and in our farming supply um mm -hmm. of materials that we use so yeah it's tough i mean that's i i uh i get why people use those and but it's uh yeah it can be frustrating on our end for sure do you think there's a lot of barriers that keep conventional farmers from switching over to no-till or switching over to chemical free yeah i mean there are a lot of barriers there's the stuff that's that you know chemicals are really effective like they're just it's hard to argue with their efficacy in terms of like doing the job that they're set to do um mm -hmm. you know there's like uh but the the problem is that like with that job with that efficacy comes all the you know uh, side effects of poisoning groundwater or yourselves or, you know, like the health effects of farmer on farmers or, um, you know, just down the, down the chain. Um, and I think like, that's if, you know, one of the biggest things, like I know there are a lot of growers who would love to switch to like, uh, sort of organic, um, 
you know, no-till. Like they want to just crimp their cover crop and roll with that. Mm -hmm. um, but cover crops are really tricky. They're hard to kill without chemicals or without large pieces of plastic to sort of suffocate them. Um, so a lot of, you know, they try it and they just, it, the timing has to be perfect and the tools, you know, have to just crimp right at just the right time and right speed. Um, and you know, that it doesn't always work that well. So you'll see people who are extremely ecological minded who still use a small amount of herbicide because it's just, it, it's what it takes to kill that crop down. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, um, I don't think we need necessarily like an organic chemical. I know those, there are such things like organic herbicides out there. Um, I just think we need to, we need to develop the right tools and the right approaches to, to be able to show them and demonstrate that this is effective on scale. Um, cause, and yeah, I mean, and also like we need more people studying and working on it cause they don't have as much incentive or as much funding if they're, if they're not getting paid to do it with, you know, by, uh, you know, like well, there's, there's not a lot of incentive for like a chemical company to pay for a, a research on how yeah. to get and then put themselves out of business. Everything. Yeah. And then disseminate <laughs> that information. Like that's not that's super true. helpful to them. So that's true. That's very true. Um, yeah. It's probably harder for large scale farmers to go to no-till and organic than for small ones to start up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, there's also like, you know, yeah. This is how they've done it. This is the equipment they own. This is how oh, their parents gosh. did it. This is, you know, this is, it's yeah. really ingrained in the culture. Um, and there's nothing necessarily, like I have a lot of conventional organic or conventional friends who you mm -hmm. use chemicals and they care. Like I've never run into anybody who doesn't like want to use less or want to just make more money. Like they don't want to, <laughs> if you could tell them you don't have to buy that chemical, like they yeah. probably, and you don't have to spend time using it. They'd be like, okay, well, that sounds like more money to me. So that's good. Like there are economic incentives there, um, that are helpful, but it, it, you know, they're, they're generally good people. It's just the, the, it's hard unless they see it's, and it's demonstrated how effective it can be, especially on a larger scale. Like mm -hmm. they'll see what we're doing. They're like, yeah, but you work a, like, you know, you're, you're, it's all hand scale. It's all really intensive in a small, like I have to grow a thousand acres of wheat. What do I like? How do I do that? It's a much different the scale element of it makes it more complicated. That's very true. That's very true. I, I do know that a lot of the grains grown in the United States today go to uh, feedlot livestock. Yeah, you know, they go to feeding livestock. And uh, I don't know, I feel like if we were able to transition a lot more of our livestock to grass fed rotational graze systems, we should use well, we would need less grain and over time there could be a transition made, you know, like using that land in a different way for, you know, a different methodology. I mean, it's still the same land, but, you know, rebuilding the soils and instead of tilling them every year, you know, using them for rotational grazing for livestock as opposed to um, growing just the corn and the soy and the wheat on that same field, which goes to feed livestock anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know it's a simplistic way of explaining it. It's a lot more complex than that. There's millions of dollars worth of equipment, you know, hung up in, in multi-generational farms and families and things, but I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in agriculture in the next 10 years.
Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I think that it, the next 10 years will demonstrate a lot of different things. Um, mm -hmm. there will be a lot of technology that will help, I think as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if help is the right word, but it will change things. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and we also, uh, see a lot of farmers getting out of agriculture. Um, yes. you know, a lot of younger farmers are not returning and, I do see more of the younger generations interested in this sort of farming. And those are the people that are staying or coming back are the people who are like, Hey dad, can I start rotating our animals? Um, and that could be an interesting, like, I think that's kind of an underappreciated element of this is like the, it isn't the, how many farmers are leaving. It's how many are coming back to like do something more in the regenerative you know, sort of vein, uh, that I see like when I go to acres, which is, uh, you know, a much more, sort of larger scale commodity crop sort mm -hmm. of conference. Um, and I see the, the growers that I see there, a lot of them are younger. A lot of them are multi-generational farmers, but they're like, I don't want to do it like that anymore. It's not working. And I think the underrated factor in all this is like, if it's not fun, people, your kids are not going to do it. <laughs> like they're just sure. not, they're not going to want to come back. And if the, and also if the communities are gone, I see, yeah. you know, a lot of these communities are depleted by the fact that like, Farms have consolidated. They've gotten bigger. There's like, I always say like, there's like four farms, you know, in these small, these old agricultural neighborhoods used to be pretty robust with people. And now it's like four people own all the farmland and they all hate each other. And that's just like what the, what the, a lot of these farming communities have turned into. Um, and then, yeah, if you don't have any friends around, you're not as a younger person going to want to stay there. So, um, you know that and if there's no opportunity if you see like your your parents have to make all their money off of like you know subsidies to uh, from you know the government to make their money that's like not very exciting like it doesn't sound like something yeah and it just doesn't sound like something like if if you could go off and make your own way and do something cool versus mm -hmm. like stay at home and like kind of have to do the you know the the sort of insurance game. I don't, I just, I, that doesn't sound very fun to me either. So I don't, I see why it's happening. And I think ultimately the correction will somewhat be natural. Like people will just come back and want to do their own thing because they have the opportunity. Farming doesn't have the reputation of being uh, a way to be comfortable uh, financially on its own, right? Like everyone <laughs> don't go into farming to get rich. I mean, get bigger, get, you know, get bigger, get out Earl butts you know, long mm -hmm. time ago. And then a lot of very large farmers did become um, very profitable and affluent, but through economies of scale, not because per acre that there was the ability to provide a living wage using conventional methods for the family that's, you know, farming it. And now I'm seeing uh, intensive farming uh, small, very small operations reporting 75, 100, $120, $140,000 per acre in produce sales and 65 cents on the dollar going to the farmers that are producing it, whether it's, you know, the family there or the farm hands that are hired or whatever, that's a living wage. Cause right now farmers get 13 cents on the dollar. You know, you buy mm -hmm. something for a dollar in the store, only 13 in the sense of that went to, you know, Farmer Jones down the road. The rest of it went to the system. But 65 cents on the dollar, that's a game changer. And then the intensive practices, like what you talk about with 
no-till and the intercropping and using hoop houses and things like that, and you don't have to use large-scale equipment. I mean, I could be wrong, but I doubt that you have a uh, a three-quarter million dollar uh, combine in your, you know, in its in its own building in the back of your property. So, I mean, it looks like on paper there's opportunity for a lot of younger people to get into farming and serving their community directly. I mean, that's one of my things that I talk about is local food supply chains, you know, meet, meet your customers where they are and, and grow for your community and support your community and keep the income and, and the jobs in that community. Because when we buy from Kroger or Safeway, it's going to the megacorp. It's not staying in the community. But if you're buying at a store, whether it's a co-op or a CSA or a market or, uh, a, you know, a farmer's market on the weekends, it's, that's money staying in the community. And it does help support these communities in the way that you talked about how they're getting hollowed out. I mean, this, these problems. Yeah. It, I mean, there's a lot of potential in small scale agriculture, economically speaking, but there's also yeah. just like, sometimes that's the option that we have, you know, yeah. uh, like I said, a lot of the land's getting swallowed by, you know, either development or yes. larger farms or whatever. So sometimes the only, uh, you know, opportunity that anybody has to farm is one acre, two acres, uh, here, there, you know, and, and, um, but I think, you know, uh, this, what is it? Necessity is the birthplace of invention or something. Yeah, so like, yeah. that's what we have to work with. And honestly, that's like the story at, throughout a lot of the world is that the farmers don't get the best land. Like the best land in Kentucky has thoroughbreds on it. <laughs> like the best farmland in Kentucky has like, you know, that's where all the, the, the derby winners live. Um, true. which is maddening to be honest, because there, it is really beautiful <laughs> farmland. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of the, uh, you know, the reality of much of the world and has been for throughout history. And, and so we have to, as farmers often make do and, and there is within those sort of, uh, you know, what we think of as like negative features of our, of our, um, you know, uh, economy and world right now, they ultimately result in really positive opportunities. You know, like we can just look at, we have one acre go like that's what you've got figure out how to use every square inch of it um and for ourselves like we farm on 0.8 acres so it's like not yeah. very much land um and we've kind of done that by choice too because you can uh you know you can scale down and do more like bigger doesn't have to be bigger doesn't always mean more bigger doesn't always mean better like sometimes smaller can mean more smaller can mean better so for us um like we you know, uh, drop crops and stuff all the time. Like we'll be like, that one's not making enough money. It's costing too much time. And it's, it may be a crop we enjoy, but can we trade somebody or buy it from one of our other farmer friends who does it better? Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, then it creates that community, that relationship. Um, and yeah. And I, I think, you know, there's just a lot of potential in small, I think a, another, you know, beyond the living soil handbook, I think, uh, another book that I want to make sure to recommend is is ben hartman's newest book the lean micro farm um he's written a few he wrote like lean farmer and uh lean farm i forget it was like a crop guide write this down hartman yeah. what's his first name ben um ben so hartman. ben hartman the lean farmer and he um yeah his his latest book is a lot about kind of what we're talking about with really small scale um yeah the lean micro farm it's all about how he and his wife kind of got rid of a bunch of their farm and made more money. Um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, when he breaks down the economics and he gives like a, a way of getting into farming for pretty cheap and, uh, 
making, I think he says like $20,000 on a quarter acre, you know, um, you know, just as like kind of a bonus, which I love. I think we often think of farming as like you either are like you own this farm business and it's the only thing you do or you're not a farmer. And I think there's like a really beautiful gray area there where you can like explore having a part-time farming job. That's, um, you know, maybe it's like, you just are, you have a field, you grow some potatoes and you sell them to your CSA friends. And it's like something you get to do every year and you enjoy it or whatever. Like it doesn't have to be all in, like it can be very nuanced. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think all of those, the, the, you know, I, I think there's so much potential in small. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think the, the naysayers saying, oh, you only have this many acres, you're not a farmer. I think that's nonsense. I, uh, yeah, I also yeah. think if, there, if anyone who says you're not a farmer, if you have off farm income, I think that's nonsense as well. Oh, I almost encourage people to have off farm. Why would you oh, want yeah. all that stress? Like why nature is ridiculous. It's what four degrees up there right now. Like, no, <laughs> don't do that. Don't rely on her. She's, <laughs> she's out of her mind. <laughs> they say that farming sometimes is like playing poker with God, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, house wins. Right. House wins. <laughs> it, I mean, yeah. last year we had, you know, two events where we had 70 mile per hour winds. We, you oh know, we had like multiple events where we got three plus inches of rain in like an hour and a half or two hours. And it's just like, I mean, there is a point at which you either have to control it all, put it all under tunnels and like do it, can do as much as you can to control mm -hmm. it. Or you can control the stress by somebody having some small off farm income that just subs, you know, just gives you a little relief. You know, at the end of the month, if all the crops die, like you can pay your bills like that is huge. And it makes farming so much more enjoyable when you just have that pressure off. And so like, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with just being a farmer. And people do it all the time and they do it really well. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't think that's for everybody. And I don't think it's a necessity. Well said. So it, you know, if you're going to be encouraging, um, giving some words of wisdom to younger generation and they're just getting started, um, what would you, what would you recommend to them as far as uh, a path to learning and a, and a path you know, forward. Oh my gosh, I can't save up. I need 50 acres to be a farmer. You know, I really want to get into farming and things like that. It's they, I, I hear all the time, this barrier to entry is this, I can't afford at this time in my life to buy this huge amount of land that they kind of like feel that they need. You want to tie that together and give some advice? Yeah. I mean, that it, it's tough because it is, it's hard to find land right now, but you know, yeah. leasing is an option. Um, it's a great, mm -hmm. it's a fine place to start. We always think like, I want my forever farm. I want to plant my trees. I want to, you know, mm -hmm. establish my, but my wife and I've done that like three times and we've changed our, and our, what our forever view was has changed multiple times. Like after oh. we had a kid, we were like, okay, well now we need to be closer to parents because this is ridiculous. Um, and then we were, we got to the other farm and we were like, and then COVID hit and we were like, okay, so we're not very accessible to our customers. So that's something we wanted to change. And so we moved to another farm that had like a building that we could put a farm store in. And so like, it was just little things. Like sometimes you don't always know what you're going to want or need in the future. So like leasing is a kind of much cheaper way of going about that. Like buying mm -hmm. a farm is a very expensive way to learn a lesson, um, you know, and, and also it ties up your capital. Like you can just do so much more and build your business without having all your capital tied up in your mortgage and your down payment and stuff. Like that's an enormous amount of money. Um, and 
I don't regret buying our farm, but we did work for other people for a long time where we didn't have to pay those. And that helped us to like establish a business. Um, and you know, uh, also don't overlook like collaborations. Like if you know other people that are looking for farm, there are, um, you know, uh, what there is information out there about how to, you know, adequately and safely kind of collaborate with somebody else. Like, you know, no, it's rare that like one person starts a restaurant on their own, right? Like you, they often work with the, like they get partners and they get other people to kind of help. And then that way, nobody is taking all the, the stress. Um, and the same thing can be said of farming. And, hmm. you know, you could, I think don't one mistake that maybe we made, or maybe a lot of people have made is just thinking of it. Like, this is the family farm. This is the thing. And the reality is you don't know what your family is going to want. Like your kids, when they grow up, you don't know what they want to do. Like <laughs> do true. it for yourself. And if yeah. they want to do it, if you do it well and you do it and you have fun with it, like maybe they'll want to do it later on, or maybe they'll leave, they'll do their own thing and then realize like, Oh, I missed the farm. I want to come back and do that. That's to me, like, instead of trying to create this situation that my kids are going to take over, that's going to be the family farm. I, I, I hope they want to farm when they're older, but I don't care. Like I'm, I'm doing this because it's what my wife and I like doing mm -hmm. and we're going to keep, keep doing it as long as our bodies will allow us. And then, you know, if they want to do that when they're older, great. And maybe they don't like, I've got one kid who loves to do like the farmer's market. And I'm like, okay, well maybe that could be, you know, like something he does. Maybe he gets into sales and in another way, but maybe he like comes back and just does our farmer's market for us. That would be huge. Cause that would allow me more time on the farm, but you know, I've got to make it fun for them or none of them are, they're not going to want to do it. That's very true. And I, I think also the younger generation now, they, they see that they're not easily fooled, first of all. And I think that they're kind of suspicious yeah. of large systems and large corporations, and they kind of sniff out injustice. Um, they, they, they thrive on fighting injustice. And I feel mm -hmm. like, um, I feel like the generation getting started like my kids are 22 and 24 right now so they're right there you know they're they're on the, the, the cusp of uh independence and they want to make a difference they want to do something that they believe in they want to do something that makes a difference that makes the world a better place because they have this peer group that's very sort of negative about a lot of things in the world today and they don't like it <laughs> they don't like mm. it at all they want they want to fight that and they want to they want to make a difference and i feel like a lot of them are drawn into agriculture because they see the opportunity to stick it to big ag heal the earth uh stop climate change um support their family without working for someone else own something i think it checks a lot of boxes for them yeah. Whether any of those can actually be accomplished or not, that's a separate conversation. <laughs> but but I think that's, you know, the mindset that's drawing a lot of people into agriculture now. Yeah. We need more small farmers, in my opinion. Like yeah. you said, with the, with the land thing, it's a big deal. You know, we're going to need a lot more farmers tucked into little places, small farmers. Yeah. And I mean, maybe I don't know what's going to spark the next you know, um, sort of back to the land movement in the mm -hmm. same way that, you know, the sixties sparked it. And then, uh, you know, maybe like the gas shortage in the seventies and eighties, like yeah. maybe that sort of sparked one. And then we also have, uh, you know, the sort of aughts when you had the, the omnivores dilemma and all that. And I feel like we're on the cusp of another one and I don't know what that'll look like, but I think it will be a lot of smaller farmers. 
Um, and I think it will be, you know, maybe the pandemic was also one, like it could, that could have been it. We'll, we'll see how many farms stay going, but I yeah. know that a lot of people bought land at that time. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I'm hopeful for that. I think that we need to see these communities kind of rebuilt and, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, a lot more people like working on, on their soil and, and caring about it. And a lot of those changes that we all want to see, I think will will slowly fall into place. I, I, uh, I agree with you. Uh, I would also say that in my opinion, what I've seen is that, hold on, I'm going to throw a toy at my dog. Stop it. <laughs> there we go. Um, I would say that it has already begun. And I think that it was very uh, much driven by COVID. Mm -hmm. I, I really do. I think I'll, I think there's been a lot of social upheaval lately in urban settings. And I think that people don't like that. I think that there's a lot of um, alarm around food costs skyrocketing and uh, wages not keeping track with, uh, you know, keeping up, real wages keeping up with the cost of living adjustment. And I think there's a lot of people who are just experiencing a lot of health problems and they learn about different ways to eat and they are starting to realize that factory food gives you, you know, health problems and they want clean food. They want to know where their food comes from and they want to uh, have a hand in actually growing it themselves or supporting others who have done that. I, I see a lot of people moving in just in my farm community. Now I'm about 35 miles Southeast of Columbus, Ohio. So we're pretty close to the capital city and that's not a, you know, it's not a huge city. I think Columbus is the 11th largest in the country, maybe the 12th. I'm not sure, but um, it's a couple million people, but even out where I am, I got to tell you, I am seeing so many little farmats popping up, mm. little chicken coops popping up in people's backyards, like, you know, the gateway animal, obviously. And, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of people getting into gardening and the farmer's market that I go to that I'm a vendor at um, is growing every year. It's, it's, it's becoming easier for me to move my products because people are starting to take notice. I, I think it's already happening. I think that's true. I, I agree. I've seen a lot more backyard gardens um, mm -hmm. in, in recent years. And I think that's super exciting. Like I just, I love seeing the large yeah. gardens and the, yeah, the different small livestock, you know, operations. And like you said, chickens, chickens everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's great. I mean, you know, I, I try and remain hopeful even mm -hmm. when faced with sheer numbers um, mm -hmm. of how many people are out there and uh, you know how much damage has been done and is being done. And, oh, yeah. and, and then I remember like all the people, how much good can be done in a short amount of time with the right, you know, energy and the right, you know, people putting the, the energy they need to into it. And it's, yeah, I, I mean, I feel, I feel hopeful in that way, especially with podcasts like yours. I feel like, uh, you know, oh, it's great to, it's great that, uh, you know, there are people spreading the word and, and excited to hear it too. Well, yours as well. I mean, your whole network is growing gangbusters. You're putting a lot of people together in the no-till space. I'm not sure that no-till had a lot of primetime following and even awareness from the uh, non-ag community. I'm not sure that there was even... A lot of attention or understanding of it um your your network is growing right of small growers 
Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it's grown tremendously. Like we, uh, a few years ago, like when we started no-till growers and, and specifically when I started the no-till market garden podcast back in 2018, mm -hmm. um, there was like no information about how to farm yeah. on, a, on our sort of scale in our sort of way, like vegetable produce, um, produce production, uh, without tillage. Like that just was a, you know, wasn't a thing really. Like it was, it was on people's minds, but there wasn't really anyone doing it or there were a handful of people doing it, but you had to like really search for the information. So that's, that was kind of the inspiration for that podcast was like, well, let's go get the information and put it in one place. Mm -hmm. um, so if you go back, like if you're interested in this, go back to the beginning of No-Till Market Garden podcast and start listening and uh, apologies for the sound quality, but the, the, <laughs> the um, you know, the information is, is top notch. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just a matter of like trying to find people doing it and yeah. figuring out what it was, like, what are we even talking about? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was, it took a, it took some time, but it, you know, uh, now we have all these other podcasts from the winter growers podcast to the composter to the collaborative farming podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, and the goal just being like, let's make them as niche as possible for the people that are interested and they can go and listen to those podcasts and like get as much information out of them as possible. I love that. I love that. Um, it's a neat community that you're building and I hope it continues to grow. It just, well, it just you. seems like there's so much, there's so much knowledge that, it was like a knowledge desert even as recently as you know five or six years ago and it has really it has really just blossomed and taken off oh yeah i mean when i started there was no you i mean there were youtube existed but there wasn't like no youtubers um you know there wasn't like any sort of like podcasts weren't really a thing i mean they were mm -hmm. around but like there was like five of them mm -hmm. um yeah so i mean now the opportunity of just like getting into this space and kind of learning about it it's huge. Like there's just so much more information. So I, I, I glad to have been a part of that and continue to be a part of it. And yeah, I hope it's helpful to people. Yeah. So, uh, just before we wrap up, what do you recommend as far as getting started and reading for people who are interested in, uh, getting into no-till gardening and farming? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, besides your book, of course, I'm sorry. I just have right. to say because yeah. besides your book, <laughs> In sure. Yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but besides the book, of course, uh -huh. um, the, you know, there's, there's some really good books out there. Ben Hartman's the lean farm or the yeah. lean micro farm. I think those are really good. Um, and we're talking strictly like market gardening stuff, Elliot mm -hmm. Coleman, uh, Jean-Martin Fortier's book, uh, the market gardener, um, Elliot Coleman's like four season grower. Those are, those are good places to start. Like they have a ton of information in them. Um, I have that one. It is great. I have to agree. Yeah. Elliot Coleman. I mean, oh Yeah. Oh yeah. The, the, the new organic growers, that one. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, and then in terms of like just watching some videos, um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I think our videos are trying to be approachable and fun and entertaining and, um, sometimes can get really in the weeds on stuff, but I try and keep it tr pretty general where I can. Um, and so anything you have questions about starting a garden, you know, go to the no-till growers YouTube channel. Um, and just search our our channel for for whatever you're kind of interested in and we've done i don't even know like hundreds of videos or something at this point keeping um, it nerdy keeping it very nerdy it's very <laughs> nerdy uh yeah so yeah that, that's a, that's a fun place to start as any um and yeah i mean it's just there's loads of information out there now and um 
uh, yeah, and podcasts. I mean, like this one that you're listening to right now, but there's so many. I mean, it's just that anything you're interested in, you can find a really good podcast on it. Um, and also shout out to my friend, uh, Jenny Love, who does the No-Till Flowers podcast. She's- um, I listen to that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, she's wonderful. I love Jenny. And oh my she's, gosh. if you're a flower grower, like you got to know Jenny, Jenny Love, Love and Fresh maybe, Flowers. Maybe I should get her on here because I haven't gotten any uh, flower growers on on here. Oh, yet. you should. Jenny's, Jenny's great. She's a big nerd. I think we hit it off then. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Um, It has been wonderful talking to you. I wish you all the success and uh, hopefully uh, may your fields always drain. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) I'm working on it. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for, uh, for having me on. It's been a blast. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. 